0: To some of your chagrin, I'm going to continue last night's team, <laughs> I hear from you, you know, you come in, you say, you know, I didn't understand a word you said, or you'll say something. Uh, but often you'll, uh, the way you say it will mean that although you didn't follow it in the details, uh, there was something that was communicated in terms of importance. And I think that's the most important communication between us. Uh, you can figure out the details later, but just uh, the sense of something else, right? I used to have a picture of um, an abushka, Russian peasant woman, who was crossing the fields, and they had stubs of stubbles of corn plants uh, where she was walking through the field and there was a shooting star and she stops and the the, uh, painting was her pointing up to the shooting star in the routine and manual fields of her labor. And I love that photo. I kept it because somehow it represented uh, both the predicament I thought I was in and yet at the same time the possibility of something magical uh, that the Dharma held. <clears throat> I remember also when I was very young in the Dharma and young in age, uh, Suzaki Roshi uh, gave a talk, who's now in his hundreds, uh, and he uh, spoke about something. I can't tell you what he spoke about. I was absolutely uh, enthralled and didn't understand a word, not a word. So sometimes it's helpful, uh, not exclusively to speak about things that matter but are not completely understood, but at the same time we also want to get down to the pragmatics of our life and how to move this thing forward. The problem is if we stay just in the pragmatic Nature of life. Uh, we don't have any uh, impulse to move out of it. Uh, if you take on a particular self uh, appreciation or self um, adjustment perception, you can stay within the field of that self adjustment, self appreciation for ever. I don't. I don't see necessarily that there's any impetus to move out of it it's always moving forward it's always getting easier perhaps getting better and perhaps getting lighter but it's always in the same field the same context the same circumstances and uh, I just I just feel like somehow spirituality in our age has bogged down and been held in the grip of psychological interpretations and perhaps, um, many of our teachers just haven't developed the depth necessary to bring us forward, to take us forward. And I think that's a sadness because I think the world now is in great need of advancement. So it doesn't. So if we just look at the state of affairs. Uh, we just we don't see much excitement here. We see a, a lot of um, what we expect to see. We wake up seeing what we expect to see. But let me take you uh, this way and that for a moment. (laughs) If you happen to follow the shooting star beyond its path into the cosmos, I hope some of you were able to go to the IMAX Hubble presentation, the movie. I saw it twice Loved it both times. Saw it once with Joseph, and uh, he loved it too. And it was—it was, it was just—it takes you through the Hubble's eye into the cosmos, this wondrous uh, vacuum of space, and it takes you out, literally, trillions of years uh, to. Uh, this formation of star clusters and galaxies and back in time, billions of years, to uh, the creation of what the universe looked like when it was very young. And the hypothesis that have come from the detailed uh, mapping of that early universe in which... Four hundred thousand years after the Big Bang were the first, uh, or the, the birth of stars, and then gal and galaxies, and that there are still nurseries of of cosmic uh, winds and solar nebulae that bring forth and spawn stars in these incubators in the vastness of space. In fact, it's so mysterious that the cosmology theories that I was listening to, the man says that the space is uh, expanding, that the space that we know is not static, but expanding. It's not contracting, but expanding. It has been since the earliest of times. But what is it expanding into? Because it is not expanding into space. There is no space that it's expanding into. It, in fact, is creating the space internally into which it expands. If that doesn't just take your breath away, it should. In fact, uh, Stephen Hawking, who is... who has just written a book uh, called The Grand Design. He says, uh, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something, he concludes. He says, you don't have to, it's not necessary to evoke God to light the blue torch paper and set the universe going. I like that. I like the fact that he's not postu- postur- postulating a creator of the universe because the creation, the universe itself is the creation. It's creating itself. And it's if that's the mystical understanding of God. The mystical understanding of God. And that is just right out there. It's just, you reach up and you're touching it. In fact, you don't even have to reach up because the star dust of our bodies is right here in the elements that we, that comp- compose us. And so we're in touch with this enormous vastness of the universe in which there are perceivably a hundred billion galaxies each containing a hundred billion stars. Okay, so that's to my right. So let's go to my left. Let's go to the very small. Let's walk this thing back from the size we are back into the smaller and smaller, the cellular life. Let's just stop for a moment at the cellular life. The mystery of the cells' movement, no master plan there, and yet it's moving in complete synchronicity to an organized structure. what's mapping it out what's what has this moving that way? what is the the movement within the cells is completely synchronistic to the aliveness of the organism, and yet the organism has nothing to do with the movement of the cells in terms of a conscious will, does it? And then if you move down from the cells and you go into the smaller and smaller reaches of molecules and the atoms within the molecules and then you start breaking apart the atoms into finer and finer details of quarks and all the different things, you get to a, a, a universe that is so random, so chaotic, that one thing can be in two places at the same time appear and disappear instantaneously. In fact, at that level of the universe, and there's no reason that the level of the universe isn't also inclusive of our level of the universe, that something does not exist until it's perceived. So consciousness is the creator from something becoming a wave pattern into being an object within space. That, that's quantum mechanics. That's the quantum enigma. And they, the scientists, I've read, just read the book Quantum Enigma. And the scientists don't deal with that. They don't deal with a consciousness component of that. Because all they, do, because the mathematics is so uh, accurate within quantum mechanics, that they just go to the mathematical side. They don't care the implications of of the fact that until something is observed, it doesn't even exist. But we can. We can feel that, can't we? Now here is the mystery of enormous vastness in the small. And the far reaches in almost imperceptible understanding of the size of the large. And guess where this dimension of life rests? Exactly between the two. You take the very smallest thing and the very largest thing, which is the universe, the size of the universe itself, and our dimension of reality is exactly in the middle. And what's in the middle? Mystery to the left. Mystery to the right. And certainty in the middle. <laughs> How was work today, dear? Uh, same old, same old. <laughs> a lot of endless meetings. Mystery to the left. Mystery to the right. And our hearts yearn to be a part of this, which is just a few inches this way and a few inches that way. We yearn to be a part, to be encompassed by this. That's what this man represents to me. I hope he represents that to you. He embellished, he embodied the mystery. He was the mystery. Everything he said didn't come from the rational. It didn't come from certainty. It came from depth, but where did that come from? Everybody crowded around him like they were seeing the birth of a star or the quantum enigma. Here was a man who embodied both sides of the equation and yet was a very practical man himself. He had a list of rules for the monks. He behaved appropriately to the situation. And yet his mind was just untouchable, unreachable. Why is it that we give away that possibility for ourselves? Why is it that we just want to stay with the mundane, the typical, the normal? Just don't take me out of the certainty that I know. And we can spend a lifetime in that certainty, and most people do. Never budging one inch to the left or the right. It's too frightening to go. I don't even want to see the IMAX movie, someone says. It takes me too out there. You see, there's got to be some call to adventure here in us. Some yearning for something else. But in order to do that, we have to have a stable platform in which to yearn, in which to yearn for the mystery. If our lives are too chaotic, if we're too uncertain in our place in life, if we are fractured within our own consciousness so we don't even know our place in things or a place among things, if we're too disoriented in the perception of who we are and the stability of ground under our feet, including financial matters, including relationship, including lots of things, then there is just this anxiety evoked and we just live with a kind of a storm of anxiety in our life. And we're afraid of uncertainty. We have enough uncertainty in the uncertain and quaking grounds of our own life. We don't want any part of that. So you realize there has to be some stability to even yearn for this mystery. There has to be something in us that has a stable enough location to be able to ask that to ask the relevant questions. But once they begin to be asked, let us not answer them with certainty. You can't ask a question that's supposed to take us to the mystery from certainty. This is an unfixed uh, travel journey. But we want to fix it. We want to be assured that the next step we take has some certainty to it, just like the one we that preceded this one. And so we try to make our spiritual journey a an extension of our life's journey up until our spiritual adventure began. We look for the details of our life to confirm our spiritual orientation. And... As teachers, we're not very helpful in bringing out and invoking a new orientation to life, a new possibility. Many of us keep us very staid and predicted within the one we are already in, so that our orientation is looped back around to see only what we have come to recognize. And because the self is fulfilled from that sense of self recognition it stays right there very placidly enjoying the work it's doing thinking it's going somewhere but just chasing its own tail that's what I heard when I heard Suzuki Roshi speak about things I never even understood not sure I would today but he would get my attention just as he did then. So we have to understand how to move this thing forward. We have to understand the situation that we're in and we have to become a little desperate within it it has to gnaw on us. It has to begin to wear on us a little bit so that we are willing to look up and hold that wonder even for a moment. And we have to recognize what is it that keeps us Within the certainty of our own dimension, we have to realize how we work and promote certainty through the very ways that we evolve as a species. And I'd just like to spend some time talking about the adaptive response of the species because it's extraordinary how adaptive we are as a species. If you take us from one-celled creatures three billion years ago and follow the evolution of that one cell into multiple organs and et cetera, breaking off and creating other creatures and evolving and et cetera, et cetera on, from that single cell came all of the plant life and all of the uh, animal life. All of it abounded from a single point in time when life began. One cell once. Not a hundred t- times around the earth at some Mr. Mist- once. And the reason they know that is because everything that's alive genetically is connected to everything else. Grass has fifty percent of the genetic characteristics that we do. Which shows the common heritage that we all share. But if you look at how what was the predominant theme within that movement from one cell to multiple cells to vast and complex organs and organisms, you find that adaptation is the theme of evolution. That when certain stressors stressors on the organism occurred, there would be an adaptation response so that it could survive given whatever the stress was at that particular period of time. And that we are the evolutionary responses of all the stressors that occurred for 3.8 billion years. This is what we look like now. And that even within our own species, we see extraordinary adaptive responses. We see people living on the Sahara Desert, Bedouin, with their camels, sleeping in tents, in heat, even that must be so extraordinary in these days that we would probably melt under its glare in an hour. And yet they live there and survive as... A community. And we see people living in igloos at the northern ends of the planet that have adapted. And what they have adapted to becomes their comfort level. They are comfortable living in igloos. How can anyone be comfortable living in an igloo? How can anyone be comfortable living in the middle of a desert? And everything in between we've adapted to. And once we adapt to something and it becomes our comfort level, then we defend it. It becomes what we're used to. And we fight vehemently to protect it. But that doesn't end the story of adaptation. We adapt internally Within this lifetime and within our family pattern, we have adapted to the stressors that have occurred as we have grown up as children, as our family pattern has grown over time, as our family community, as our lineage. And we are born into a particular disposition because of that family lineage. And within our childhood and from our childhood, there, there's been vast Arrangements psychologically of our adaptive response and attitudes have formed and certainties of self, self self-assumptions all along the way, absolutely calcified within our certainty. We know who we are. We know how awful we are. We know the pains and the scar tissues and we've adapted to that we've overextended we've overreached we have projected an alternative response if we perceive ourselves one way we try to have the world see us in another so that we can at least have the world see us as a way in a way that doesn't invite the same protest that we have inwardly towards ourselves We're constantly adapting. We see somebody, if we're in pain, feeling our inadequacy, we see somebody who doesn't, disapproves of us, we try to adjust it so, adapt, so that they will start approving of us. What is it that they need from me so that they'll like me? We say to ourselves. How can I adapt to this hostile situation in the moment so that I can become comfortable in the community of this person? Adaptation is an amazing response that we offer. It has become our lifeblood, our salvation internally and externally. And just as we will defend our comfort level if our continent or country is invaded, we will too if our internal world is threatened. And we have a whole set of reactive patterns that are meant to do just that, to scare off, to scare off the intruder from our territory. They're called defense mechanisms. And it's because we have adapted and actually are very comfortable within whatever patterns we have lived our life in. They may not be comfortable patterns, but at least they're certain. They're patterns of certainty. And that makes them comfortable to us. And so in here, we bring forth a spiritual journey. Spirituality is supposed to threaten. It's supposed to absolutely take us to the edge of ourself. But we make it an adaptive response. We talk about lifetimes, don't we? And therefore, there's there's no pressure on me to have to show up and change. I can just kind of keep adapting. Lifetimes, lifetimes, lifetimes. A zillion lifetimes. Somehow I'll adapt my way, what? Out of an adaptation? I'll get to a moment, one lifetime, when suddenly I'll realize I've had 10 billion previous ones and say, well, I better get going on this thing. (laughs) What number are you on now? What number are you on now? What number? You see? And in our... Spiritual adaptation, we begin to cultivate, you know, we think in terms of cultivation, in terms of just kind of moderating the certainty that we're in. And yes, spirituality does call for change, and so I'll, I'll provide some moderation within this organism, this internal... I'll start looking at certain things and noticing my pain and adapting to those and having a particular response that is an adaptive response like, oh, this this too shall pass. Because that's an adaptive response. I see that things are changing. I see that there's a difficulty here. And I will say, okay, well, you know, if I just wait this thing out, it'll go away and I will readapt to, back into a more steady pattern. So just let me put up with whatever is going on now. I sort of talk myself into a new storyline for a moment so that I... Become a little uncomfortable because it's an intruder. And I'm, but I, I'm okay with it because I've learned sufficiently how to hold something long enough until it disappears and then I can relax again. Does this sound familiar? This is the adaptive spiritual response. And I hope you hear the dead seriousness. Within it. Because it's about each one of us. It's about our lives. And unless we tune ourselves very fine tunedly to what we're what we're doing to ourselves, we'll never reach the moment in which we want to rise above it. So our adaptive responses reinforces time. We just wait it out, basically. And most of us have become very proficient at waiting out whatever difficulty it is through. And it's a very... I mean, it works within this particular dimension between the vastness and the smallness. Within this dimension, it works kind of adjusting, you know, just moving things around a little bit. But it doesn't take us to any immediacy, to any real change. If I'm suffering, I just apply the remedy. Just change my attitude. So, if I don't like the way things are, I make a decision to like the way things are. (coughs) Then, that adjusted attitude... I can relax. And I don't really like the way things are, but I know that that's what I'm supposed to like. So I'll, I'll try, okay, okay, I like the way things are. You know, come on, Rodney, get on with it. You know, you've got to be with the way things So we talk ourselves, the narrative talks ourselves into an adaptation response so that we can relax with it. And that's what most of us do most of the time. And we call that our spiritual journey. So I'm not asking for us to change it. I'm presenting another option. And I'm asking to see whether it's complete when we are framed within mystery. Is this response to something called the spiritual, which is supposed to take us into the mystery? Sufficient to fulfill us. That's the question I want to pose. That's the question I hope you ask yourself. To challenge yourself. And the the one thing that we notice when we do adapt is that we don't like really having to adapt. Because we have to change to adapt. And many of us don't like even the process of change. But when we're forced to have to change, when there's a loss or there's a uprooting or when we lose our job or some catastrophe happens, the way the mind adjusts to a new adaptation level is called grief. And grief is the response, and there are phases of grief, which are phases of the adaptation, of changing the adaptation response, creating a new storyline and a new narrative that I can become, after I have say it enough to myself, it becomes the neurological pathway of choice and then I can settle down with that because it now becomes a new adaptive response. So what does grief look like? First, there's a denial that I have to change any neurological pathway at all. I just... See myself going this way. I see an event happening, so I'll go to the right and pretend it didn't happen or is not going to happen. And we're very good at that because if you don't believe that, look at the climate crisis. We are at the edge of a precipice, and we're strumming our guitar. That equivalent to the fiddle playing in Rome. And it's, we have to see this thing. We have to see this. And there, so there, I'm amazed at the denial, the level of denial in people around this issue and any real threatening issue. I'm just not going to adapt to it. I'm just not going to do it. If I close my eyes and pretend, it won't be there. Now, us, we can't do that. Because once you start, once your uh, continuum is to come from unconscious to conscious, which is wherever you, whatever continuum you decide upon fits within that continuum, to so make ourselves conscious, then denial becomes uh, inexcusable. You just, you can't do it for long. So that one falls away. But what comes in the next stage is anger. And we have a lot of that in this culture. Some of us aren't so good any longer at denying, or if we are, uh, we are also equally reactive in this next phase, which is it's getting in a little bit. The information is getting in with every scientist, reputable scientist in the world stating the same conclusion. It's getting in a little bit and it's making us tremendously angry. And I just can't believe... The level of divisiveness that uh, is now at play, the sides, the sides. It's most evident where we can see it the most uh, easily, and that's Congress. But it plays itself out. Congress is nothing more than a manifestation of the country's consciousness, and that is playing out at every level. And it's very, uh, very amazing to see that. So this is an adaptive response. This is this and in stage three is that we try to find a compromise. Okay, let's I'll tell you what, I'll drive a Prius. If I got a change, I can't stop my flying, can't stop burning the fuels I love, but I'll get a Prius. Then everybody will look at me and say, Wow, isn't he or she ecologically attuned? Right? So we, we try to do little, small little things. Small little things. We try to do that. And then the fourth response to an adaptation is we get depressed and despairing. And this actually is, uh, we become disillusioned with the reality we've been in. And that's the potential now for the mystery to enter comes in the disillusionment. When we're disillusioned with the reality we're in, now take it away from the climate zone and put it into whatever is predicament you're in. When you have bottomed out, when, a better word than despair is disillusionment. But disillusionment is good because we're dissolving an illusion. We're moving out of an illusion, a pretension, a belief that life will be okay, that we won't die, that Put in the fill in the phrase. And what happens though is that instead of letting that open up into the mystery, because now we don't have anywhere to go. Disillusionment doesn't create a new neurological pathway. It takes us to a hole. There's no, Where do I step? There's nowhere to go. Anywhere I step is just back into the old patterns that created this disillusionment to begin with. So if we see it at the depth of the understanding that we could see it, grief falls off into a hole of vastness. I have hospice stories I could tell about around that point, but I don't have enough time. In any case, most of us What we do instead of disillusionment, as we call it, acceptance. And acceptance is a new pathway, is a new narrative. Same journey, same dimension, same landscape, just a new way around, a new narrative, a new storyline that keeps us going. Now that's not going to take us very far, people. It's just not going to take us where we need to go as a species. Where's the mystery in that when we've bypassed it? You see, there are two dimensions possible here. And let me just show you how these two dimensions work in everyday meditation. Most of you after lunch, at least from my perception, have a lot of sleepiness. Heads nodding, standing up, trying to bring forth enough energy to last until the bell rings. And we are completely engrossed in the form of our sleepiness, right? And what we want from the teacher is some remedy that will adjust or increase my energy sufficiently so that I won't be sleepy so that I can get rid of this problem. And most of our spiritual work is an attempt to modify the experience at hand. We call that skillful means, but really it's just an adaptive response. At the same moment that that sleepiness occurring, is occurring, there is another dimension that's available. And you can ask for of it. You can call it up. You can say to yourself, is awareness sleepy? Is awareness sleepy? Suddenly, you have to reframe the issue of our sleepiness. Suddenly, instead of seeing it as a problem that I have to resolve, there's something that holds the problem that I have to resolve that isn't the problem at all. Now, can I put my finger on it? Can I... Can I grab it? Can I seize it? Is it a form that I can condense and use? If it uh, if it could be, I could sell it. No, because it's the mystery. It's this. It's the shooting star. It's the quantum enigma. Right beside the appearance and certainty of the sleepiness lives coexists, is held within the dimension of the mystery. We we choose to adapt the adaptive response of sleepiness. What do I do about my sleepiness? Tell me how to adapt to this problem so I can keep my narrative going and keep my spiritual journey certain all along the way. Instead of asking a question from the enigma. Is awareness sleepy? Is awareness angry? Is awareness restless? Put whatever characteristic you want and ask it of the awareness. The awareness is none of those. The awareness is not an adaptive response. That's what's so amazing about it. You can't adapt awareness. In fact, I put up electrodes in your brain, and I have a bell going off during the course of a sitting, the awareness of that bell would not you would not adapt to the sound of that bell. Somebody else who's just like hanging out in their minds would adapt to it very quickly and it would no longer see the pattern of the ringing on the neurological display of of the uh, of the EEG. But for people who are awake, Awareness never adapts to it. From moment one, it hears the bell, and moment 45, it hears the bell. There's no adaptive response in awareness. It does not adapt. It's changeless. It does not change. It's the mystery itself. And when we choose that response over the normal and usual response that we do, which is the adaptation of trying to figure a way out of the problem, we have joined the small and the vast. This dimension then is continuously mysterious, inspiring, uplifting, uplifting. It's the because we have joined everything. We haven't frozen things between the vastness of the large and the enigma of the small. We haven't frozen our certainty. And we have a choice moment after moment on which we can make that happen or not. And the mechanism for making it happen is very different then the mechanism for ad- that keeps us within the same dimension the mechanism that keeps us within the same dimension is adaptation the mechanism that allows us the full abiding mystery is surrender surrender is not an adaptive response we can't adapt our way to awareness all we can do is surrender completely to awareness. What do we surrender? We surrender our separation. We surrender our certainty. We surrender our control. I'm saying the same thing. We surrender our position. We surrender our fixation. And you can hear what comes in as we release more and more, this is what comes in. The nebulae, nursery of stars. The chaotic of the small. The range of the entire display. And surrender is a complete release. It's not a new narrative. It's not now, how do I surrender? It's a complete release from the narrative itself. It's a walking out of the narrative. A stepping out of the narrative. Of the trance that has kept us within the dimension of certainty. It is stepping out of that trance. Out of it. That is why I am talking ceaselessly to probably many of your annoyances about this one possibility we have together this week. Let's not forget what this is about, even if we are working in an adaptive way, which I am not at all faulting, because many of us need to work adaptively before we have the stability to be able or willing to surrender. But let's not forget what this journey is really about. Let's not forget what Suzuki Roshi was trying to communicate to me and all I heard was mystery. Let's not forget what this man stands for behind me. If you want to check it out sometime, check out his mind and tell me how you can contain what he said.